Hi, this is Melissa and welcome to this episode of Be Curious, a podcast interviewing B Corp business leaders about their experiences. This week, I'm talking to Lisa Walker from Ecosphere Plus about carbon trading. Hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so hi, I'm here with Lisa Walker, CEO of Ecosphere Plus. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Um, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's going to be pretty exciting. I'm excited. I hope you are too, but it's okay if you're not. Um, so normally I would start off with some pretty lighthearted early careers chat and you know how you started and what inspired you and then move into the industry in a bit more depth. But because you've been working in carbon trading for 20 years now, even going back to your early career, I can't really avoid without jumping in the deep end with a very important question of what is carbon trading? Okay, well, thank you. That's a good place to start. And yes, I am excited too. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, 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 my career has been yeah, spanning 20 years working, um, I guess, on climate change and the energy transition and generally finding the different market mechanisms that can help us make the changes that we need to make. Um, so certainly it started out with um, my first job was working for BP. I was uh, very young and... Uh, I think they were looking for somebody very junior to help them think through what could the role of emissions trading really be and uh, and what does that mean? Well, you know, this was back in 1999, starting off thinking about um, climate change. It was being recognised within the oil and gas industry as obviously something that needs to be taken very seriously. And, you know, what are the different ways in which companies and governments could respond? Uh, and the idea around emissions trading is to find a flexible mechanism that puts a price on carbon and enables companies then to make different business decisions based on now you have to manage your bottom line according to your carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, it's a fundamental kind of economic principle, but it's really, really important because, you know, generally you manage what you measure. And if you're not measuring your carbon emissions and you're not actually taking into account the costs of those carbon emissions is going to be very difficult to incentivize anybody to reduce them. Uh, so that's the sort of principle behind carbon trading um, generally, and it can be called emissions trading, carbon trading. And then there's another aspect to that, which is to say, well, you know, there's the side of carbon trading, which is how do you put a price on carbon for established emitting companies? And that's the sort of thing you see. Um, emissions trading systems popping up around the world. We have a very well-established emissions trading system in Europe. But there's also a way to use carbon pricing actually to incentivize emissions reductions anywhere in the world. Um, And that's what I work on now, which is really how do you use carbon price or climate finance, if you like, to actually change economics in unsustainable landscapes so that, you know, we have great emissions capturing machines. They're called trees. Um, but we don't have a, you know, the oldest technology in the world, photosynthesis. Um, very effective. Very effective at storing, uh, capturing and storing carbon and obviously delivering many, many other environmental and social benefits. However, you know, we're not ascribing an economic value to the CO2 storage facility within the trees uh, and we're deforesting at a really alarming rate around the world. So that's the other side of, of how carbon trading, you know, this umbrella of climate finance can be used very positively actually to change the economics, um, to incentivize emissions reductions and then in the case of, of deforestation actually to hopefully reverse the trend and, and give a financial incentive to keep trees standing and doing what they're good at for what the they planet. do best. Exactly. Super. So 
these carbon markets that you work in, you said that they were really established sort of 20 years ago, but they've developed a lot to where they are today. How do you start establishing that as a government or business-wide practice? Saying that it, it creates an incentive, an economic incentive, but how do you, how was that system created in the first place? Yeah, well, that was something. Um, so emissions trading itself um, actually have, goes back much further than that. In the United States, they uh, actually had emissions trading markets for different pollutants. So for the clean air regulations in, in the US, so there was some, um, you know, lots of established practice and lessons to be learned. There were also some early experiments with uh, greenhouse gas trading in Canada, uh, but the UK government was one of the first actually to really take this on. Um, and they they took it on, you know, I think because of a really strong push from business. And, you know, I was very lucky, like I said, you know, this is my first job in BP, um, led by quite a visionary CEO at the time, John Brown, who decided that climate change was something he wanted to take seriously within the company. He set BP a target, a voluntary target, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. One of the first companies in the world, certainly one of the first oil and gas companies in the world, to set a target to reduce emissions. And then, you know, started to think about, well, how do you respond? And clearly one company cannot respond to something that's a sort of existential threat to the whole industry on their own. And so he, he pioneered um, this UK emissions trading group. And... You know, I'm really proud to have been, you know, a very small part of that as my role as a very junior person within the Secretariat. But what they did was a proper public and private partnership model, if you like. So you had uh, companies at the centre leading the sort of charge to say, well, you know, how do we respond? The UK government should should take on this issue of climate change and they should think about the different ways in which they they could put a, a target onto industry to reduce the UK's emissions. Uh, so you had government involved within the working group. So they had, you know, it was very well established. You had Treasury, um, what was the DTI department back then, the Department for Trade and Industry, mm. and, and what was called DETR, which is like the Environment Department. So the important parts of government all represented, which I think is a really important lesson because Definitely. if you just have the Environment Ministry and you yeah. don't have Treasury, it's unlikely that you're going to get something implemented. Um, we also had representatives from all across industries. So yes, um, oil and gas companies, also, you know, we had some really leading um, heavy emitters, so Blue Circle, the cement company, for example, yeah. and, you know, working groups, like I said, for pretty much every industry, uh, the electricity industry was obviously a, a major factor and an important consideration in how would this emissions trading system work. Um, and then we had representation from different working groups, so legal was one, uh, another was from academia, another one was from trade unions. So, you know, we tried to have a very multifaceted approach lots of lots of stakeholders involved that was my job kind of bringing all the stakeholders together and managing them and um yeah that that was i think a really a key to the success and then having government working alongside industry um which culminated in basically proposals being written obviously proposed to government and then government responding with um with a set of mechanisms, a target, and some funding for companies to then voluntarily, which is pretty cool, mm. um, to then voluntarily enter the UK emissions trading system. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't a, a sort of an overnight thing. Um, 
I haven't seen anything really like it since, so I think the UK should be very proud yeah. of what we managed to achieve there. And that really set off a model then, um, you know, after the UK emission trading scheme, you know, was up and running, and yes, it had teething issues, as you can imagine. Mm. But that was really a model then that was adopted across Europe and, you know, a much bigger system, you know, covering thousands of emitting installations across Europe, um, being part of, uh, you know, a proper, properly regulated carbon trading market. And that was launched in 2005. So you sort of see the progression from yeah. 99 early developments in the early noughties with the UK emissions trading system and then a fully fledged really European-wide emissions trading system, um, you know, and that's a market that's worth billions today yeah. and is, a, you know, a key part of, a key consideration for, um, you know, the dispatch order, obviously it sets that for the whole of Europe um, in the grid. It's expanded to include airlines, you know, so on. It might include shipping and other sectors in the future. Mm-hmm. Um but it's still alive and, and doing well today. Really well, yeah. It's it's interesting saying that, um, how important it is to have the government represented, which is definitely true. And I also agree with you, it's very important to have the industry represented when you're making policy about industry. But some people would see that, you know, so many huge polluters contributing and leading the industry policy on pollution might be seen in the same way similarly to you know H&M or Nike leading research into sustainable fashion. I think it is really important to have industry in there, but do you think there are different reasons or beyond the practicalities as to why the industry is leading it, beyond, I would say, common sense? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's fair. That's a fair um, question, you know. So should the turkeys be, you know, regulating Christmas? Probably not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would say... You know, in the UK emissions trading groups system, you know, there was a, a big representation from academia. So you're bringing independent experts all the time. That was really, really important. We also had a whole host of NGOs, um, you know, coming, you know, represented as part of that process as well. So, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of independent oversight. Yeah. It was quite a transparent process as well, which is, I think, quite different to what's perhaps, you know, perceived now in policy making of, you know, it's a bit of a kind of cloak and dagger and, and I can see the reasons for that because you're creating policy, you're creating a market, you don't want to be giving sort of insider information necessarily yeah, uh, to g- game the system. But, you know, I think the, the process that we ran in the UK was quite transparent and inclusive. So, I mean, I think it's worth saying that, you know, I've spent my life working on climate change, energy transitions. I'm totally dedicated to sustainability, but I spent, you know, most of my career within oil and gas companies, and I was not a lone crusader. You know, yeah. there are many, many people within oil and gas companies. They, you know, that are experts in these areas, and they know the business as well. And so they are the right people to be involved in making decisions. And I think that's something again that comes down to trust. And I think in perception, because I'm sure people think everybody in oil and gas companies are trying to do the opposite um, than actually, you know, reduce emissions. And that's absolutely not true. Yeah. Um, you know, you need people within those companies that are very much trying to change them from within and, you know, push as hard as they can to deliver real, you know, real action, real results. So, yeah, I mean, it's fair criticism, but I think in that case, we were transparent and inclusive. Yeah, that's, I think I agree that's so important, having a transparency. It's a similar issue with supply chain today. It's when companies say that they might be doing something good, but then their supply chain is 
so convoluted and opaque that there's no way to know if they're doing what they're doing. But once you have a clear set out, this is what we're doing, you can see it everywhere, then it does make a really big difference. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Moving from the UK Emissions Trading Group to the EU or the international, I'm sure the UK Trading Group, especially having a lot of academia, was already quite an international crowd, but was there a big shift going from a national to an international programme? Well, I mean, certainly the, you know, what changed with the European emissions trading system is that, you know, that market opened up the entire world for emissions trading through the mechanisms of the Kyoto Protocol. So the clean development mechanism, mainly, there was also one uh, called the joint implementation for more developed countries. But the clean development mechanism or CDM was set up to basically put that price on carbon and incentivize emissions reductions anywhere in the world in a developing country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you know, linked the European emissions trading system to a global emissions trading system right from the, you know, right from the beginning. You, know, you saw a huge growth in um, emissions reduction projects you know, in countries like particularly China, India, Brazil, who were major suppliers of CERs, I think, uh, which were the emissions reductions, the certified emissions reductions that were generated by these companies um, in China, could then be sold into, you know, say a BP or whoever, UK or EU-based mm. uh, installation to help them basically reduce their emissions at a lower cost. Yeah. Now, again, lots of teething. If you look back historically, lots of teething issues in the system. I think it took time to get the flow of data and information right so that targets can be adjusted appropriately and pricing corridors maintained in the right fashion. But, you know, I think hugely successful in terms of creating an incentive and awareness around climate change and emissions reductions all around the world. Um, and that, you know, it was the EU that the EU's regulatory system that really drove uh, the demand for those emissions reductions yeah. internationally. But it excluded forests and that's something that we focus on at Ecosphere Plus is mm-hmm. like, well, you know, third, if you look at the science, 37% of cost-effective emissions reductions that need to happen before 2030 need to come from the land use sector. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to incentivize and deliver all of these emissions reductions? And if we don't deliver them, there's no way we can meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. There's no way, you know, that we can actually, you know, function in some ecosystems without our forests. So... You know, it's a huge opportunity and climate finance is really, really key to that. And, and it's not being driven at the moment through the regulatory systems. So is that because then the uh, EU system excludes forests? Is that because they're not focused on sort of biodiversity work in Europe or because they refuse to cooperate with forest focused projects internationally now that they're not internationally trading? It was, it was more the latter. So forestry projects, that, you know, it took time to get the right mechanisms in place. Um, you know, there was a mismatch in timing, mm-hmm. um, which is unfortunate because, you know, obviously deforestation rates have continued to, uh, to go in the wrong direction in yeah. this period of time. You know, now we're 20 years sort of almost on from that period of policy thinking. And, you know, we've got the, the benefit of satellite imagery and GIS systems and a lot of technology that can help us monitor forests, um, give us confidence in the permanence of emissions reductions. That's really important because you don't want to be trading, you know, an emissions reduction that may actually, you know, not be real, for example. So I think there was a lot of concern over that, you know, 10, 15 years ago that we've, we've certainly overcome now um, and recognizing that, 
goodness, we need to incentivize emissions reductions within the land use sector, forests being really key. And, you know, so that's now, you know, in the last couple of years, we're finally starting to see um, demand for the, you know, environmental assets of forests. Um, but that's really being driven by voluntary action by companies. So, you know, when we started Ecosphere Plus, so, you know, two and a half years ago, nobody was talking really about natural climate solutions. And what do I mean by natural climate solutions? So this is thinking about the ability to reduce, you know, store emissions uh, from different land use related um, or ocean related um, projects. So that's conserving forests, tropical forests, obviously reversing the deforestation rate, restoring land, you know, restoring degraded peatland, for example, could be wetlands, soil carbon, mangroves. So those, you know, all of those projects are, or methodologies, technologies combined, um, make up this kind of new asset class of natural climate solutions. And, And like I said, you know, a couple of years ago, that was something that wasn't so much of a focus you know the focus was very much on the energy sector the energy transition almost ignoring this and forgetting about this really really important solution which is also obviously a risk because it's the only sector in the world that can go from being you know a net emitter which it is today you know um to actually a net sink in the future uh and when we think about where we have to go we need to go to you know to zero carbon emissions there is no way to get there without our forests. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, it's it, what's really great to see um, is voluntary action and leadership now being shown by different com- companies in different countries and different sectors, uh, saying actually we know we have to start investing into nature as part of the transition. The energy transition is not going to happen fast enough. Obviously, we do not want to detract from the decarbonisation that needs to take place as fast as possible within industry yeah. and within the energy sector. However, we need to do this as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's kind of what's been, you know, I think great to see leadership from different companies um, over the last couple of years embracing natural climate solutions and, you know, starting with some examples if that's useful to you. Examples? Yeah, yeah so... Um, a couple, couple of your faves, maybe? Yeah, so, for example, Shell, you know, oil and gas company, probably not somebody that, you know, anybody's going to be associating with a big program on forests, but, you know, they announced their shareholders um, back at the end of 2017 they were going to set a long-term emissions reduction target voluntarily, again, ahead of regulation. Um, I think a lot of that, you know, in response to pressure from from shareholders and other stakeholders, you know, they need to see the company decarbonizing. Absolutely right, that's what we all expect. So, you know, as part of that, they responded and said, well, we're going to start being very transparent. We will include our product emissions within the emissions reduction target. Also really, really important because companies decarbonizing within their operational footprint if they're, especially if they're a hydrocarbon company, yeah. obviously the products that it's they're selling is 85% of the impact, right? So, okay, so that's that was a, a really positive step for mm-hmm. an oil and gas company to take, a, showing a target that encompasses the scope of three emissions. But also they announced that they would include within that, um, you know, full decarbonization um, 
in the short term to help bring emissions down more rapidly, which is obviously what we, we all know we need to do, is investments into the land use space. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting that now, you know, in the Netherlands, you can buy carbon neutral fuel from Shell. And every yeah. time you're filling up at the pump, you know, each litre of fuel is, is working towards actually uh, compensating with, you know, keeping forests standing, yeah. um, protecting or planting trees around the world. I think that's a very cool thing. But, you know, there's I've, lots of leadership from other companies and other sectors um, within the supply chain sector. There's a number of companies that are part of the international platform for insetting. It's sort of um, basically an approach we're saying, well, you know, how can we make emissions reductions uh, within our supply chain or that are, you know, within landscapes that are really important to our supply chain? Yeah. You know, and recognising that for a landscape to be healthy, you need to have standing forests as well mm-hmm. for a whole range of reasons um, that you need to keep that ecosystem healthy. Yeah. So, yeah, very cool to see it's companies so, embracing it. It's interesting, as you say, that the um, of Shell's new moves is partly for pressure on stakeholders. So, obviously, BP in 1999, they, that was an internal decision that the CEO decided to make. But nowadays, a lot of the things that we see coming out of industry is from public pressure, because especially this year with you know the environmental activists going on in London recently, it's such a, a hot topic. But 20 years ago it wasn't, so it's so interesting that there was this huge shift in industry completely voluntarily, but now it's partially due to more public pressure. I, I, I think that's totally right, um, I, and actually I think within the oil and gas industry, I mean, what really changed things a few years ago was you know, analysis that started to come out looking at the financial risk of climate change. Yeah. And this is really, really, really important because, you know, this kind of, um, the, the cover of, of, of Rolling Stone magazine actually called it um, climate change terrifying new maths, um, <laughs> which was pretty simple, actually, yeah. which is, you know what, you're investing billions, trillions into um, finding um, more and more fossil fuels we're all investing our pensions into fossil fuel companies, so we're going to be reliant on the health of those companies for 20, 30 years yeah. for the entire economy's health. So, you know, there's a huge, um, huge problem here, is that we already have more fossil fuels than we could possibly burn, and we're investing so much more money to find yet more fossil fuels. You know, I think what that shone a light on was this is a financial risk as well as a climate risk. And what changed, I think, at you know, COP21, the big UN summit in Paris, is that you had um, you know, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, represented at COP21. And you know, like I said, the lesson learned all the way back from 99 was yeah. like, you had the finance ministry. They weren't really ever involved. We didn't have governors or central banks or you know, there in capacity as he was, at, you know, as a sort of chair of the Financial Stability Board for the G7. That was a big deal, and he was there with, with Bloomberg, you know, as a leader from the United States to say, okay, we need to start thinking about the financial risk side of this. Yeah. And that's been a, a massive driver for change across every sector and in the finance sector as well, really having to look hard at uh, the future and be very transparent about um, their businesses, which include their carbon emissions, and, and think about, okay, well, how are we seriously going to transition? 
And interestingly for me personally, as my husband was involved in, in a lot of that work through an organization called the Carbon Tracker Initiative. So sometimes it did feel like we were possibly like Mr. and Mrs. Smith in this <laughs> whole transition. Um, climate environmental power couple, if you will. <laughs> well, yes, but, but, but I think maybe perceived as being on the opposite side, <laughs> even though, of course, we're all working for the same thing here. Yeah. But there you go. So it's, uh, it's really interesting, but it made a huge difference. And what I would love to see, and we have a great advisor that, that works with us actually working on this very topic, um, is how could you create that, that same mentality but for nature now as the next big thing because, you know, increasingly companies are realizing, well, you know, climate, yes, but there's also another crisis going on, which is biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously nature, forest, landscapes, you know, ocean, health is, is all totally intrinsically linked. And again, that, that sort of linchpin being this, natural climate solutions well okay how do you perhaps harness that for good but but we need a lot more transparency uh, around um you know the impacts on on land use that's not you know something that's so well understood yet we have really good data on you know all of the emissions from you know industry and energy related companies but we tend to be a little lighter on um, really understanding what's going on with regards to supply chains exactly for the reasons you said that you know, sometimes you know it's still harder to get data so that has to be a priority for the next sort of wave of policy and corporate action i think mm. so if a company was looking to focus on some natural climate solutions you said that you know the trading emission reductions can be hard to pinpoint on their accuracy, but how would they go about doing that through a carbon trading market? Yeah, so if we work with companies that decide, you know, they want to, to take some action, you know, often companies will say, well, you know, we would like to um, we would like to focus on a particular landscape because you know we're sourcing a key ingredient from this country or because we have operations in this country um, and others really don't mind they're driven more by the impact that they want to have so yeah, they want to say we want to have a wherever however we would like to make sure that we're not just worrying you know we're not just paying for carbon emissions reductions we'd like to have an impact on women and girls health in a developing country mm-hmm. you know and and that's you know that can be important to a com- company and so we're sort of led really by our clients and in terms of well okay where do you want to focus your actions and then our model is is very much that you know we're part of an impact investment fund you know we use that climate finance as a you know as a way to deliver a whole host of different positive impacts so we measure not only carbon emissions reductions but we we also set kpis around gender around sustainable enterprise for local communities mm-hmm. around ecosystems watersheds Obviously, biodiversity and, and sort of um, other other aspects that we measure. So we'll work with a company to say, okay, you know, do you want to launch maybe a carbon neutral product? So there, the first step would be to they need to understand the life cycle impact of that product, and you know, they need to be looking at where can they make reductions within their own supply chain, within their own operations, as a first step after measuring the data because obviously they should only be offsetting the residual or the unavoidable emissions mm-hmm. reductions within that product. So, you know, often that takes com- companies a while to complete that process. And then when they have that carbon footprint finalized, if it's for a product, um, then we work with them and say, okay, you know, based on your preferences, 
where you know we can source from or supply from our different projects that are located in developing countries, obviously with important forests, <laughs> so tend to be tropical countries. And, and, and then we work with their company to make sure that they talk about it in the right way, because that's really important. We don't want them making claims that are, you know, overstepping the impact that they're really having. Um, but equally, we want to help them make their, um, this whole activity meaningful for their own stakeholders. That could be employees, that could be customers if it's a product. Um, it could be their internal stakeholders on their board. Uh, and so often we do things like breaking down their impact into, I suppose, different kind of chunks. So, you know, we have a, a company, it's a shoe company, and you know, what, what they're doing is, is buying a unit of um, carbon credits, but how they talk about it to their customers is every time you buy a pair of shoes, we protect this number of trees. Sensible. So it makes it really simple for yeah, very accessible. the customer. Exactly. Yeah. We did a pilot uh, last year with Ben and Jerry's um, and with another technology partner that was sort of integrating a blockchain solution, but basically to put a, a price of carbon at the till. So you buy your scoop of ice cream and uh, in the London scoop shop of Ben and Jerry's and one penny from each scoop is going towards... Um, forestry projects around the world and that was also very cool because they had a, a sort of a big screen behind the till and the till every time the customer made a purchase it ticked up and you know in terms of number of tennis courts or forests yeah. protected again just making it very accessible no, and, nice. and easy to understand because I think you know as much as I would love to think that everybody is walking around worrying about their carbon footprint the reality is they're not most people actually are probably totally unaware of their individual carbon footprint. And, and so I think the more that we can do to make it um, meaningful yeah. in our everyday lives, the better, um, because we obviously need to scale this thing up yeah. pretty rapidly. It gives a very good positive incentive to know that if you were going to buy something anyway, well, now you're getting some good environmental impact for it. And I think, you know, realizing that it's, it's very cheap to do it. Um, and what I like about companies engaging with this, you know, some people say, oh, well, you know, those are companies that are just kind of greenwashing or they're just paying to offset and not really doing anything. Actually, from my experience, the opposite is totally true. It's these companies that are taking it seriously, that have measured their impacts. We only work with clients that are already, you know, taking positive action mm. on climate change. Reach, you know, they're being public about their, their data. They're measuring the right things. They're looking to reduce before they look to offset. And this is a sort of last step towards you know kind of getting to carbon neutral or net zero so i think that's got to be something that we celebrate within yeah, companies definitely. and i hope that i think you know younger consumers having more spending power demanding more from companies they don't want to work for companies that aren't taking this seriously and they definitely don't want to buy from them i think that can only be a really positive thing and and like you say the sort of public action i was involved in in, in a youth climate strike with my 12 year old son recently um who was insisted on taking the day off of school to participate in a climate strike and you know it was fantastic to see how many young people are engaged um and really holding everybody to account yeah. in terms of the government and companies to take action um faster and, and make sure it's you know meaningful 
action. So yeah, I think that's only going to increase yeah. pressure on companies. No, it's, it's it's a very cool movement to be part of, definitely. I mean, logistically, if a company, you know, Ben and Jerry's, they're like, okay, we're going to donate a penny of each scoop to buying trees and investing in environmental projects. Would they make the investment up front and then receive these carbon credits as a later return? Just So there are different models. So normally, um, you know, how we operate at the moment is you know, we're part of an impact investment fund. The, the, you know, there's a sort of large upfront cost often to these projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, know, you have to access finance. That's where impact investment in our model is really, really important because actually our investors are sort of development finance institutes as well as private yeah. sector in- investors. I'm so sure picking the projects is really important as well. Exactly. So there's a huge amount of technical work that needs to go on to make sure you you're operating the project the right way and everything is designed appropriately. We have a very, um, uh, I think, a very thorough ESG policy and standard internally that aligns with things like the IFC performance standards, FPIC, you know, for free prior informed consent for communities, it's really important. International Labour Organization, ILO. Mm-hmm. So we're taking from all of these external standards, create an even far-reaching um, internal standard. And then there's the carbon and biodiversity standards that we also are having to verify again. So it's, it's, a, a, it's a lot. So, you know, generally the way we operate within Ecosphere Plus is that our clients are then purchasing credits that have gone through that whole process and been generated. Right. And then the community benefit sharing happens when there's a carbon price actually paid, um, which is a really nice model. Now, I think when you get start to think about you know, in the future, sort of companies may be wanting to secure much bigger sort of long-term supply. Um, then there are other models where companies might want to invest directly into funds. They might want to direct invest directly into projects or even create their own projects. Mm. Um, all of that is possible. And um, I think we're already starting to see that kind of interest from companies, which you know, I think is only a positive sign that Definitely, things yeah. are going in the right direction. Yeah, I guess it's, it's really important to make sure that they are investing in what will be considered good model, models and good projects. And it's very cool yeah. on your website, the amount you talk about the uh, balancing sort of human and planet, so not just working on projects which, you know, fence off a huge amount of the forest and then yeah. say, cool, well, this is ours, we're protecting it now, but recognising the fact that a lot of communities actually rely on the forest and exactly. deforestation is part of how they survive. So finding sustainable solutions to moving those communities forward so that they can work in a more symbiotic way exactly. is really important. So one of the things that, you know, is important to us is, you know, investing, if we can, in projects that we, where we combine the sort of uh, protection activities, if you like, the conservation activities with investment in productive activities. So, you know, for example, investing to maintain um, a national park, but then also investing in an agroforestry system within what, what are called buffer zones around these, which around these national parks or, or other protected areas. And so you've got then, you know, you're creating a totally different incentive structure on the ground. So, you know, in Peru, we've created farmers cooperatives um, and invested, you know, in, into the cacao agroforestry systems. And we've seen now the first, you know, we, and you have to invest in the post harvest facility to make sure, you know, that the communities actually can access the international market, you know, with fair trade and organic cocoa or cacao um, and that that's very exciting so we've had our first shipment you know from Tampa Pardo before you leave I can give you a chocolate if you like to taste it yeah. um, but it's, it's lovely to see how that model can work 
And the key being that you've got climate finance, somebody's putting that price on carbon, you know, to keep the forest standing and then to enable this whole ecosystem of investment to take place. It's, it's very, very cool. And, you know, in other projects, like I say, it's maybe less about the production activities, but what the communities use their carbon finance on is, you know, to support girls to finish their education in Guatemala. We we also invest in, you know, mobile um, women's health clinics. You know, there's no access to, um, to women's health or maternity care, uh, in, in that part of Guatemala for indigenous communities, some of the poorest communities in the world. And now because of carbon finance project, not only do they get to keep their forest standing, which is really important to them, you know, locally, economically, but culturally as well, uh, but then they get other amazing benefits for their community. Um, and I think those are some of the untold stories a little bit about carbon trading. Yeah. People just think it's about emissions. It and, sounds you know, very industrial. Exactly. The personal impact that it can have. Exactly. It can really make a huge, huge positive difference um, you know, to people, to um, animals, <laughs> you know, um, and as well as to the local economies. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, for me, a very exciting market to participate in is probably mm -hmm. why I've kind of kept me interested for more than 20 years and even though you know 20 years sounds like a long time we're still really only just at the beginning of what's possible and I think now with this culmination of you know technology solutions being possible for industry to decarbonize within itself the pressure from policy not only sort of energy policy but prudential policy driving financial institutions to behave differently um, and the public being much more engaged and shareholders understanding the financial risks, I'm hoping that we're kind of just at the beginning of of this really um, growing because ultimately, you know, the carbon market should be the biggest market in the world because yeah. pretty much every single decision we make every day, even you know as we sit here and emails come into our our inboxes, that is a carbon footprint and you know. Yeah, we're not there yet. It's not the biggest market in the world, but you know, it does need to be something that is factored into every decision we make. Um, and you know, what's exciting for me now, and what's different from say twenty years ago, you know, twenty years ago, if we thought about, well, could you launch a really large-scale carbon-neutral kind of product, or could you really have a petrol that you know save trees? What you know, whilst we're moving to electric vehicles, mm -hmm. you know it would have been difficult to get the uptake. Now, you know, we've got, everybody's got a mobile phone. You know, 20 years ago, we weren't, everybody was not even connected to the internet. Um, we have digital technology, which I think is really exciting. We can track individual carbon footprints. We can track the individual carbon footprint of different products and supply chains. And, you know, we can, we can make those decisions in real time. You know, there's an, an app in China, which you know, it was bought out by the Alibaba group, you know, Ant Financial called Ant Forest. And it basically is individualized carbon footprints of citizens who get rewarded for making better decisions wow. within their spending. So they switch to a renewable energy provider, they get points. Actually, they become gardeners, they grow trees. And then in, in the real world, real trees get planted. Um, and, and that was used by 200 million Chinese people that downloaded that app. Wow. Um, amazing potential. So I think that, you know, if we harness digital technology in the right way and we, we understand all of these different um, all of these different drivers, 
uh, you know, it does still keep me optimistic. Yeah. And I think that's really important because doing this job for this long, it's very easy to have dark days, <laughs> you know. I can imagine. But at the same time, you know, I do believe that, you know, if we have more companies engaged in the system, hopefully more companies like Ecosphere Plus, more B Corps, because yeah. B Corps are naturally thinking about these things right and questions. thinking about yeah. the future. Exactly. And then we harness the tools that are available to us now. Just because it didn't work 20 years ago doesn't mean it's not going to work now because things are different. Yeah, definitely. I love your uh, very wonderful acceptance that the market is still growing, the optimism that it's going in the right direction. It's really cool. Um, I hope so. I've got one final question for you before we wrap up, which was, what did you want to be when you were younger? <laughs> so interesting. Um, when I was very young, I wanted to be a vet. Um, Lovely. <laughs> so still helping animals in a, exactly. in a different way. But um, actually, it was interesting. So what changed for me, so I grew up in New Zealand. Um, at a time, given my age, I just turned 40, um, uh, where you know the ozone, the hole in the ozone layer was a major issue mm-hmm. in New Zealand. And you know, I would travel from New Zealand to England, you know, where um, my family members they didn't know about sunscreen. They, they did not get burned in five minutes if they went outside. It was wow. not an issue. And then we'd come back to New Zealand and we'd be like, you know, you have to slip, slop, slap everything. You're never allowed. My mother was great. We were, you know, we were never burned. <laughs> very um, productive. But, you know, that really started me thinking at a very young age, oh, hang on a minute, how is this fair yeah. that we didn't cause this hole in those in there? My cousins in England aren't affected, but we are... And so I, I had a real sort of soft interest in that. And, oh, then, and then I think, you know, I, I look back, I found a, you know, a paper I wrote when I was nine years old. It was all about uh, sort of how ways to solve net fishing crisis. Oh, so I think there lovely. was a big part of me that was obviously predisposed to this, but in particular yeah. around emissions, it was very real to me. And, you know, it remains something that's also very important now because actually, you know, 30 something years on, close family members of mine have died of skin cancer. So, you know, that's real. Something that, you know, I will never let me sort of take me from this path now because we need to find global solutions. And I think about all the countries and all the people that are impacted far worse than we are today and will be impacted far, far worse than we will be in our safe environment in the UK mm-hmm. um, or in any other kind of Western developed country. Yeah. You know, and that's what really drives me forward to think, well, you know, you can't give up on yeah. that basis because, you know, I was deeply affected. You know, my community was affected by that global crisis. And, you know, yes, we found a way to solve that. So we need to find a way to solve this as well. Wow. Um, That's yeah. beautiful. You've had such a passion from such a young age. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a shame you had to learn it out of this turmoil, but it's um, wonderful to be working in what you love, I'm sure. It is, yeah. No, I'm very lucky, and we, we have a great team of people at Ecosphere Plus, and within our, our you know, impact investment fund that we're a part of, the Moreover Natural Capital Platform. I think everybody has a different, similar personal passion for the space and I'd say it's probably an important ingredient if you want to work in it for a long time. I don't think so. Super, well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been really wonderful talking to you today. Um, hope you had fun. Yes, Rose. thank you. Cool. You've been listening to Be Curious. I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you did, hit subscribe for the next episode when I talk to Kate Sandal from B Labs London about social businesses. Thanks for listening and I hope you have an excellent day.